When God sovereignly places you uh, in a chaotic situation uh, that seems hopeless, what are you going to do? It's not uh, if it's going to happen, it's when it is. Uh, and the question is, are you going to go forth in faith? Some of you have already faced in those kind of situations because you're telling me and that the book of Esther is a timely book to study uh, because uh, your dysfunctional family has put you in a situation where you're forced to make a decision about something uh, that concerns morality and righteousness. Uh, some of you are in an office uh, that is complicated, kind of a pressure cooker, uh, and you are in a situation where you know you must speak up. Uh, and so what, what are you going to do? Uh, it's not easy to, to speak up. It takes courage, doesn't it? Uh, and as it has been said before, uh, one person of courage uh, can lead to many people's of courage. You just need to see one person step forward and it motivates others. It's kind of like priming the pump. And so will you be that person that will be courageous? The, the book of Esther is about courage. It's about the courage of Mordecai uh, and his cousin Esther. Uh, and as we uh, look at his example uh, this morning in chapter two and chapter three, I hope it uh, motivates you as, as it motivates me uh, to stand up and, and be counted for the Lord uh, when, when the situation arises. I want to uh, do what we've done before. Uh, treating narrative literature is different than uh, like Pauline or Petrine kind of literature because you're dealing with a story concept. And so we'll move through it in sections. Um, and so the story has a certain form that coalesces around a main idea that we'll, we'll talk about as we go through here. But I'm going to look at the seven movements of uh, the book of Esther, uh, chapter 2, 19 through 23, and then chapter 3, uh, because that all forms a unit. So we need to treat it as a unit. Uh, and so what we're going to do is we're going to begin first uh, by looking at what I would call in verses 19 to 23, the revolution. Uh, the revolution begins this part of the story. Uh, it says in verse uh, 19, and when the virgins were gathered together, the second time Mordecai sat at the king's gate, uh, Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. So a second gathering. So we know that Esther just became the queen. Uh, she's Jewish. She's hid her Jewishness. Uh, she has, from my perspective, as I gave you the reasons why I thought she uh, compromised her faith as a, as a Jew. Uh, she has compromised her faith. So has Mordecai. Uh, she's uh, in a Gentile uh, court as the queen. Um, but the thing is, as we look at her life, her, her sin, as it were, did, would, did not thwart the purpose of God. So just as a side note, when you look at your life, you do sin, correct? Nobody is sinless yet. You're looking forward to heaven when we don't sin. Uh, and she, she had sinned. Uh, and Mordecai too, to get her into this position. Um, but that didn't thwart what God was going to do in the long run to protect his people. Uh, and so whatever you have done, you have made missteps. God is not through with you. Uh, there is great hope uh, that he is going to work in your, your sin to do greater things. Uh, back in 1981, I had uh, Dr. Tony Evans as a professor. You know who that is? Uh, and it was, uh, I had, I had uh, Dr. Geisler before, uh, for bibliology uh, and eschatology, and then I had Dr. Tony Evans. Whoa. It's like geyser with cerebral, heady. I had to continue to pull out a dictionary. What was that word that he just said? Uh, and then Tony Evans is like, I got hit by a freight train. Um, but one day in class, toward the end of our time that we had with him, uh, he, he said this. He said, gentlemen, uh, in your lifetime as a pastor, you're going to fire a lot of crooked arrows because you're, <laughs> you're not perfect. Uh, but he said, realize that God can hit a target with a crooked arrow every time. Isn't that true? Yeah. That preaches. Yeah. I got a few amens. Awesome. Yeah. 
when, when, Anthony, when Tony preaches, you get lots of amens. He gets you fired up. Uh, it was the same way in class. We're sitting in class going, oh yeah, yeah. And so when you look at the book of Esther, did, did Mordecai and Esther fire a crooked arrow? Mm-hmm. Did God look down and go, well, that's it? No, God looked down and said, no, I can, fi- I can fix that. I can do something with that. So we have in this section what is called the revolution. The second look at the virgins, what was that all about? Uh, probably the, uh, uh, they paraded all the virgins uh, before the king one more time just so he could look at them in relationship to Esther to, li- to verify to himself, yeah, I chose the right one. And that's probably what that was about. Now, what we want to focus on is the fact that it says that Mordecai sat at the king's gate. Now, if you're just reading through the Bible in a year, you might read that and think, yeah, that's nothing. That's boring. Moving on. Read the rest of the sentence. But that's huge. When it says that Mordecai sat in the gate, uh, we have to do a little gra- grammatical analysis for a second. Are you with me? <laughs> okay. So when it says, and Mordecai was sitting in the gate, uh, that, uh, there's a coordinating conjunction. In Hebrew, it's called a vav. Uh, that's their word and, like our conjunction and. But theirs is a vav. Uh, it's W-A-W, but it's pronounced like the German, where the W is a V. So it's a vav. So if you take a, the coordinating conjunction and, and you wed it to a non-verb, i.e. Mordecai, you just made it extremely emphatic. The other thing you did is uh, when you create this disjunctive in the clause, you let the reader know a new story is starting. Well, what's the new story? We just had the one about Esther becoming the queen. What's up next? Well, what's up next is... Mordecai's sitting in the gate. So you're just sitting yourself, thinking to yourself, well, he's probably just hanging out, playing checkers. Uh, you know, he's an old guy, you know, shooting the breeze, meeting his friend. Oh, no. Uh, this is a picture I took in 2004 of a, of a Navy a chief petty officer friend of mine that I was with in Israel. This is in the city of Dan. And this is a, 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 the, the gate as you entered into the city of Dan. Uh, to your right-hand side, if you're actually walking there, were little niches where all the gods were. So when you came into the gate of a city, you had to worship all the gods or you didn't get in. Uh, and if you had any kind of business dealings, judicial decision that was needed, the king's throne was right there. And so that's right where the king's throne would be, uh, one of his many thrones. But in the city of Dan, this is where you could go to, uh, to hook up with judges, attorneys, etc., work through things. Uh, and the king uh, sat quite often right there. So when it says that Mordecai was sitting in the gate, the Vav just tells you it's a new story. What's the story? Mordecai's got a new job. What's his job? Well, his job is denoted by the fact that he's sitting at the gate. So the, the participle, you love participles? I do. Yoshev uh, <laughs> is, the, is the part of participle. It's a, it's a participle meaning, uh, he, it, it's probably classified as an iterative participle. Because if it was durative, it would mean he sat there forever. Well, no, he's a human. He had to go home occasionally. So if it's iterative, it means he frequently went there. For what reason? He had a job there. That's what? Some kind of judicial, judicial position. How did he get that? Probably Esther uh, hooked him up with a job. And so he's sitting at the king's gate. What is he doing? He's, he's, uh, he's doing business deals, some kind of legal action on things. And this is where business of the, of the empire took place. Uh, Isaiah 29 verse uh, 21 and, or 20 and 21 tells us about the importance of a city gate. Uh, it says in verse 20, for the, for the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off. Who cause a person to be indicted by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate. See the justice at the gate? Uh, and defraud one in the right. In the, in the right with meaningless arguments. So uh, Isaiah says in his day and time, the nation is going to fall because the Department of Justice is corrupt. Did you just hear me? 
Now you're like, the Bible's totally not relevant. Oh, it's totally relevant. It tells you how nations disintegrate. How did their nation disintegrate? Isaiah just told you. They can bring a person up on trumped up charges and ensnare him on his wording and send him to prison based on, on what they want to do to that person. What, what was it, Stalin? Show me the man, I show you the, the crime. Or Lenin, one of the two. But you understand the motif? This is nothing new. And so this is what they were doing in, and they were doing that in the city gate because that's where legal actions took place. So Mordecai wasn't just sitting there, he's working there. By chance? Oh, I don't think so. No, uh, God, God put him there. It says, in those days, in those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's day, gate, uh, there's two guys that he ran into. Uh, the names they named these people. <laughs> Again, I, I submit to you, if you are uh, uh, going to have a child soon, uh, here are two possibilities if it's a boy. We'll name him Big Than and Teresh. Serious? Big Than and Teresh, uh, two of the king's officials uh, from those who guarded the door became angry and sought to lay home, hands on uh, King Ahasuerus. Uh, so Mordecai sitting at the gate doing business, tons of people, tons of action. Uh, and near that is, is, a, is, a, is a walkway and a doorway uh, to the king's residence. These men are like his bodyguards. Uh, the first time I was invited to go down uh, to uh, pre Vice President Pence's office called me when they, uh, Trump became the president, asked me if I would come down and pray for the vice president. I don't care who the president is. I'm a Christian first and foremost, correct? And so I don't care if it's a Democrat or if it's a Republican, I'm going to go pray for that person in, in office. And so I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll come down. And so I, so I did. And, uh, and so I went through security and the bomb blast door and stuff in the Eisenhower Center next door to the West Wing. And I, I got a badge. I could go anywhere I wanted. That was cool. I was just, <laughs> have you been in the Eisenhower building, by the way, the checkered floor and everything? And I'm just kind of walking around like, whoa, this is cool. Like, where am I going? Uh, and so I just kept walking and walking and walking. I'm like, where's the vice president's office? And uh, finally, I looked down one long hallway and I saw four big young men in suits. And I think they had weapons standing there in the hallway. And I thought to myself, process of deduction, that's got to be the vice president's office. What do I do? Do I just blow by those four guys? Hey, what's up? I, uh, no. So I pulled out my cell phone, fake like I was making a phone call, just kind of walking along. And I came up to them. And about that time, praise God, the door opened to the vice president's office. His uh, chief of staff was sitting there and he's like, hey, Marty, Pastor Marty, come on in, man. And I blew by those, those guards. I could just see them like body slamming me onto the ground for, you know, I didn't know what the protocol was. Do you just walk through the secret service? So, uh, so those guys were like Big Than and Teresh. Uh, they just got better names. All right. So what is their job? Protect the vice president. So what are this, these guys, what are they supposed to be doing? Protect the king from anybody that wants to go to that door and get, get to him. Uh, but but, but they, didn't, they didn't like the king for some reason. Uh, maybe they, nobody knows what their problem was. Maybe they, maybe they liked Vashti and they didn't like the fact that, that, he, that he nuked her because they really liked the queen. We don't know why. Maybe they were upset over the fact that the king got them involved in a, in a, in, in a war with the, with the Greeks and the Greeks had a, uh, an inferior army and they were beaten by them. And, and had to run back to, to Persia, maybe. But nothing like a coup d'etat to set things in a different direction. You, you know what a coup d'etat is? Yeah, it's a takeover. Yeah. So they, they, they proposed to, to get rid of the king. Because it says in verse, they want to lay hands on him, which is like a euphemism. This is not like a Pentecostal thing. <laughs> yeah. We just want to bless you. No, they want to kill him, okay? 
Uh, in verse 22, it says, uh, but the plot became known to Mordecai, because where is he sitting? King's Gate, place where lots of activity goes on. Uh, kind of the everybody's there that's anybody. Uh, it became known to Mordecai, and what do you do with it? He's got intel. This is an intel church. You get intel that's super good, what do you do? Sit on it? No. He told <laughs> Esther, and then she did what? It's in English. Can you read it? And, and <laughs> Esther informed the king uh, in Mordecai's name, which just told you, she just told him, uh, I got this information from one of your like law clerks down there at the gate. Uh, he's got wind, uh, etc. And so, uh, so what did the king do? Now the plot was investigated, which is what a king should do, right? You get information on a coup d'etat. You find out, is it true? Uh, and what did he do to the two, two men, Big Than and Teresh? Well, they hung them on the gallows. How do we know that? Well, it was written in the book of the Chronicles of the King's Presence. They didn't want anybody to forget that if you try to kill the king and get rid of the leader, well, he'll put you on the gallows. Uh, now, this is very interesting because what you just saw was a picture of the book of Esther. Have you, have you read it, by the way? I've told you to read it. You just saw a picture of the book of Esther, didn't you? Because, because an evil person is going to hatch a plan to get rid of people like the Jews and Mordecai, but that plan is going to come back around and, and ironically judge them. And so th these men are going to rightly wind up on the gallows. And later another wicked man is going to rightly wind up on the gallows because God's going to reverse things. So this is like, go back to Tony Evans. What did he say? God can hit a target with a crooked arrow. God can make reversals happen that you didn't even anticipate. So what was going to happen in this book is a huge reversal. Those who were uh, uh, near genocide, i.e. the Jews, uh, they're going to be the ones that are delivered. Uh, and, and Haman's going to be the one hanging on the gallows. Now, we have to stop and talk about gallows for a minute because, well, I'm from the West Coast. And I, I, you know, I was raised around a lot of cowboys and stuff like that. So when you think of gallows, you've seen movies like what comes to mind? Clint Eastwood movies. And... Don't be like some young person that walked up to me one time and said after church, well, who's this Clint Eastwood dude? <laughs> Are you an American? Okay. <laughs> Go watch some movies, you know, make my day and all that stuff. So remember Rawhide 1960s? Yeah. So you think of a gallows, what do you think of? Wooden platform, you know. Yeah, there's a rope. It's in the center of town. Everybody gathers around to watch a trap door. You know, that, that whole thing. That's, that's what we as Westerners think of gallows. That is not a Persian gallows. So just get that out of your mind. Gallows is not a good translation. So who invented crucifixion? The Persians. They invented crucifixion. This is how it started. There's a guy named Martin Hegel. He's a German uh, who wrote a book on the history of the crucifixion. It's about a 90-page read. It's an academic book, but it's a great read because he traces crucifixion back to the Persians. So when you got hung on a gallow, it's not like uh, in, a, in a second your neck is snapped and you're dead. That was not a Persian gallow. They wanted you to be an example for all to see. So what they would do is they would take a tree and they would skin that tree of all the branches and everything, and then they would uh, make the point of it really sharp. And, and, and they would impale you on the shark like a giant toothpick. Sound comfortable? This could be 60 to 70 feet high. And they used to do this when they would attack cities, if you study uh, warfare uh, methodology in the, in the ancient Near East, because they would put people caught outside the city gates and they would impale them and they would raise them up 60 to 70 feet as they're dying so that people in the cities could see what was happening and then surrender so they wouldn't get impaled. I mean, it was like psychops. 
And so they, they take these two men and they impale them and they raise their bodies up for anybody that walks throughout the capital and sees them, watching them die a slow, terrible death. They're thinking to themselves, coup d'etat, good idea, bad idea, bad idea. So uh, fast moving episodes, they, they, they found to be guilty and they're judged instantly. Um, now you would think that if you're Mordecai and you just gave this information uh, to Esther and she gave it to the king, he did an investigation, found out it was true. There was gonna be an assassination plot. They solved all that. They put it down in the, 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 you know, their version of a, of a computer for their bureaucracy and recorded it in their chronicles. You would think that who would get rewarded? Mordecai. I mean, if you're the king, you would think. Now, Herodotus, I don't know if you sit around and read Herodotus like the first historian, uh, but he, he notes in his uh, book, uh, on this, this time of history that the, uh, the Persians were, were known for lavishly rewarding people who did great things toward the kings. So you would think, you anticipate in the story, Mordecai is gonna get elevated big time. That is not what happened. He's gonna get passed over. He's gonna get passed over and the reward's gonna go to another guy that didn't even deserve it. You have to stop and ask yourself for a minute. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> Why do you laugh? Haven't you ever noticed that sometimes people wind up in, in places of great leadership that have no business being there? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, so you're like a colonel, right? And you, you get your you know, third look to become a one star and you get the first look, the second look and the third look and then some committee nukes you because uh, maybe there's somebody on the committee that doesn't like you uh, and you get nuked and they, and they give the promotion to some other guy that you know absolutely has no character, doesn't have the pedigree and everything that you've got and they give it to somebody that you're like, serious? Serious. Has this happened? Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, promotion. And, and so this is what it meant. Mordecai's like, they're gonna, they're gonna reward me. Oh no, they're gonna reward a guy named Haman. Um, so I'm just here to tell you as a side note, if you've been passed over, if you've been overlooked, the Lord didn't overlook you. The Lord always sees injustice and in due time, he's gonna reverse that. Uh, now we will look at what I would call the reward. We made it to verse one of chapter three. You should be excited. Uh, it said, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. He's number two in the kingdom. What, what did he do that he got so elevated? We don't know. He did something major. Uh, and so a man that really didn't deserve elevation gets elevated. And the man who should have been elevated doesn't get elevated. Remember Jesus said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. There's gonna come the great reversal in due time, either in this life or in the next life, but justice is coming. So don't, don't lose hope. So God is a God who deals with injustices like this. So like, who is Haman? Who did it just say he was? Well, he's related to a guy named Another bizarre name, Hamadatha. Uh, what's his origin? He's a what? He's, a, he's some kind of stone? Agagite? No, stone. What's an Agagite? So an Agagite, if you study, uh, is an Amalekite. Ooh, what's an Amalekite? Amalekite is Israel's avowed enemy. If you go back and you study the Exodus, you know, 1446 BC, you know, you were talking like 900 something years prior to this event. 
the Amalekites were the one when the Israelites were in the wilderness. There's two million of them, you know, trudging through the sand and the, and the, and the cloud following them in the daytime and the pillar of fire at night. Uh, but, but as the old women and children and, and, the, and the, the special needs people and stuff drifted toward the back of the pack, the Amalekites would come along and pick them off, kill them. How did Moses feel about this? Well, Moses tells you in chapter 25 of the book of Deuteronomy, verse 17. Here's what he says. Remember what Amalek did to you along the way uh, when you came out from Egypt. Uh, what did he do? Well, he met you along the way and he attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. He did not fear God. Uh, Therefore, it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all the surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord God gives you, Israel, land of Palestine, uh, you as an inheritance possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. God said, do not forget what this evil people did to you. God says, I won't forget. God does not forget evil. And so he says, I want you to, I want you to deal with them. So, uh, so uh, Haman is an, is an Amalekite. Israel's avowed enemy. Mordecai, what's he? We've already studied this. This is test time. He, well, he's Jewish, but who's he related to tribe-wise? Well, Abraham for sure. <laughs> uh, the tribe of Benjamin, right? Remember he's left-handed? Remember we had this sermon about the left-handed people? Praise God for them. Uh, so, so Saul, okay, so um, he, uh, Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, King Saul. Saul took on the Amalekites, but didn't finish them off as he was commanded in 1, Corinthians, or 1 Samuel 15. So Saul uh, didn't wipe out Agag of the Amalekites, their king. He, he let him live when God said, no, eradicate him. Uh, and so what you're finding in our story here uh, is historically behind the scenes, Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, is going to do what Saul never did do. Now think about the timing of this. The, the Exodus was around 1446 BC, right? You're like, you say it is. Yeah, it was. It was around 1446 BC. Um, and so King Saul was commanded by the prophet to uh, wipe out the, the Amalekite king. He did not. Um, that was about 400 years after the uh, the, the Exodus. And then you have uh, Mordecai coming along 565 years even uh, after the time of Saul uh, stepping forward to bring justice. This tells you a lot about God. Does he act quickly? No. no, no. If you ever look at your world and go, what is taking him so long? If I was God from my throne, lightning bolts, I would just nuke this. I would solve this. What does God do? No, I'm, I'm working my plan. And I'm working it out slowly. It involves millions of moving parts, but I'm going to bring justice. So hang in there. And so Mordecai is dealing with an ancient enemy of God's people. Uh, Verses 2 to 3, we find what I call the rebuke. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, the number two in the kingdom. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, notice the contrast, neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king's servants who were uh, at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Hello, what are you thinking about? Why are you transgressing the king's command? It's either you bow or you die. And, and he's like, I'm not, I'm not bowing. What, why didn't he bow? He's a Jew. Who are they? That's our avowed enemy. That's an Amalekite. I will never bow before an Amalekite. Moses told us to deal with them. And so he said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bowing. So when God places you in a chaotic situation like this with an enemy... Um, you do not have to kowtow to the enemy. He didn't. 
he bravely stood up to the enemy. So too often I think we stoop instead of stand. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Remember them? You've probably heard the story when you were a little kid. You know, and when they're told, when you hear the music play, fall down and worship the image. So millions of people, you know, bowed before the image. And what did they do? They stood. They stood. So you have to stop as a side note and ask yourself, uh, if God has put me in a complex situation, uh, am I going to stoop or am I going to stand? Mordecai said, I'm going to stand. Uh, we get to a revelation in verse 4. It says, and that was uh, when they had spoken daily to him, to Mordecai, uh, he would not listen to them that they, uh, they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So obviously, Haman didn't know about this uh, because there's so many people uh, in, as he's riding by, on, you know, in his carriage or whatever he was in, uh, he, he didn't have a time to survey all the people. But off in the distance was a lone Jew standing there. And so uh, these people go to the king and, and, or to Haman and they tell him, um, we need to reveal something to you. Do you realize that there is one man who doesn't bow when your awesomeness goes by? You know, people who embrace evil, who love power and control and all that, uh, do not be shocked when they turn on you. When you make a moral stand, do not be shocked. But realize that God is with you in all of that. He will not desert you. Verses five to seven is the response of Haman when he finds out this intel. When Haman saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him, he was filled with tolerance and understanding. <laughs> no, he was filled with rage. He's got an anger, anger management problem. Uh, so if, he, if you could write down what he probably was saying, it probably went something like, how dare one Jew not bow before me? How dare him do that? I'll teach him a lesson. Verse six, it says uh, he hatched a plan. What was his plan? But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai uh, alone for they had uh, told him uh, uh, who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. Huh? You went from hating one man to hating the entire nation? The, all the Jews, uh, the people of Mordecai, they were throughout the whole kingdom of Asherah. So in verse seven, he launches his plan. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Hashuarius, Pur, which is translated the word lot, that's not a Hebrew word, that's their Aramaic word, uh, cast a lot before Haman from that day to the, from month to month until the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now, this may mean nothing to you, but this, if you know Jewish calendars, this is huge. Okay, so their calendar begins with Nisan, all right? Uh, and, and, and it's gonna end with the month of Adar. So he's, he's casting lots, uh, uh, each month to find out what's a good day to wipe out all of the Jews. This is an anti-Semite. He not only hates Mordecai, he hates the entire Jewish nation. If you want to see the level of hatred, just go read the first uh, five to six chapters of the book of Ezra, which tells you about the evil things they did to the Jews who returned to Palestine when they were trying to rebuild the temple. Go read. There was tons of animosity going on. So this didn't just happen out of thin air. So he's, he's uh, going to wipe out Mordecai, but he wants to wipe out all of Mordecai's people because he uh, opposes them. Now, think about this. If you are Satan, think of the strategy. If you can wipe out the Jews, then there's not going to be a Messiah, right? Because this is like around you know, 472 BC. Christ is going to be born about 5 BC. The devil knows that the Messiah is coming. It's his opportunity to wipe them out. So Haman's plan involves soothsaying or divination or what we would call witchcraft. He's going he's to roll the dice 
and he's going to see what, di- what day the thing consistently falls on. We're going to pick that day to wipe out all the Jews. Um, what he doesn't know uh, is in Proverbs 16.33, uh, it, it says that God controls the roll of dice. Right. Right. You roll the dice and God, I know what number's coming up. It's, it's going to be boom. Uh, and so he doesn't know that God, God controls even the dice. God controlled placing Mordecai in that job at the gate. Uh, he, he controlled him hearing what he needed to hear to save the king. He controlled all that. He's now controlling the dice. But he begins this uh, whole plan in the month of Nisan. So the month of Nisan in the Jewish uh, calendar uh, is when Passover is. This is interesting. He's beginning his genocidal plan in the month of Passover. What happened in Passover? Pharaoh was going to wipe out all of the Jews and God sent 10 plagues to judge and destroy not only the Egyptian pantheon, uh, but to judge uh, Pharaoh and his mighty army from trying to wipe out his people. So you would think, Haman needed to read some history. Anybody who tried to wipe out God's chosen people headed to the Holy Land, God protected them. Now he's thinking, well, I can wipe them out and I'll start my plan in Nisan when this Passover begins. But God's greater than that. Think of the pride of Haman. So God has a plan to protect his people. Does he not? And so... um, so we, we see the greatness uh, in the timing of this all is, is, is not by accident. Uh, the request that Haman has uh, in, is in verse 8 to 9. He comes to the king and says, uh, I, I, have a, I have a plan that needs to be executed. What's the plan? Uh, well, there's a certain people uh, scattered and dispersed among all the people in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of all other people, and they do not observe the king's laws. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. Uh, If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry on the king's business to put it into the king's treasuries. Think about that. I mean, he would have made Joseph Goebbels happy because uh, Goebbels was uh, Hitler's chief propagandist. And what he does here uh, is total propaganda. He doesn't tell the king which people. There's just a people. So notice what he says. He doesn't identify the people. Uh, secondly, uh, he tells the, the king that there's this ethnic group scattered throughout the empire. Uh, it, it, was it true or not true? It's true. This is propaganda. It's true. Yes, they were scattered throughout the empire. Uh, three, uh, he said they had their own laws. Did they? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and and then, then fourth, he says that they disrespect and, and defy Persian law. Not true. Not true. So all of a sudden he goes from truths to half-truths to a lie. And he just throws it out there and hopes it sticks and it sticks as we're going to see. Voltaire once said, those who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. Do you hear me? He throws out something absolutely absurd and he gets him to, to bite as we're going to see the king bites into it. Uh, and he says, I'll even pay you king money. So Haman must've been very wealthy because he offers the king 10,000 talents of silver. So a talent weighed in the Old Testament, 75 pounds. Uh, silver presently sells for $25,000 a pound in our day and age. Uh, I went to our business office to make sure the math was correct. He offered him $19 billion to, to wipe out the Jews. Again, don't think the same stuff doesn't go on on our day today where lies are told about God's chosen people. Apartheid, they've taken over the land. No, they haven't. That's been their land that God gave them. I mean, it was ruled over in the period of the judges. It was ruled over in the period of the kings. It was their land. 
It was their land. They were taken off of it by Nebuchadnezzar. They were relocated by Cyrus, king of Persia. It is their land. God gave them that land. Well, from the river to the sea, we'll get rid of them. That's genocide, is it not? As we have told you before, these are all lies in our culture that are moving around the world. And, and God says, uh, I hear the half-truths. Uh, Haman uh, evidenced the same kind of things, but God says, I will, not, I will not forget my people. God never forgets you in your complex situation. It says that the king uh, took his signet ring, he makes a rule in verses 10 to 15, from his hand, uh, that was the point of all power. You got the king's signet ring, you can make anything happen. He gave it to Haman, the son of Hamaditha, the Agathite. Who is he? He's the enemy of the Jews. Uh, and the king said to Haman, the silver is yours and the people also do with them as you please. And the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month and it was written just as Haman commanded the king's satraps to the governors who were over each province and to the princes of each people in each province according to the script uh, of the people, etc. It said that they were gonna take them out on the 13th uh, day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar. That might not mean anything to you, but here's what it means. He starts the process of genocide at the first of the year. And he says, we're going to conclude it according to the gods at the end of the year. So we're going to wait for 11 months. And in the 12th month, we're going to launch our, our plan to eradicate the nation of Jews. Why do you wait so long? Uh, if you study it, because I've studied it. If you study Hitler's methodology, it's the same methodology. Uh, a year gave the Persians time to discover where the Jews stored their wealth so they could go seize it. Uh, a year off of impending doom caused fear and caused the people to flee. Hitler did the same thing. Uh, a year would give the politicians time to use propaganda to deceive the masses. Same today. Uh, a year would position them to purchase property of Jews at below market values as they fled for their lives, which is exactly what happened when Hitler came to power. Uh, a year would give the government time to write and establish anti-Semitic laws to drive the Jews out of the culture. And a year would uh, give them the ability to put together their machine to wipe out the Jews. And where was God? Well, he had positioned a young lady uh, to be queen over the empire so that at the right time she would step forward and deliver her people and she wouldn't stoop. What would she do? She would stand. And it would, it would start with like her cousin Mordecai because God doesn't forget us when we face chaotic foes. He wants to bless and protect us, all of us. He, he wants to bless and protect you. Uh, and even though your time might look evil and menacing, God looks down from heaven and says, no, I have many people placed in your life to protect you and to bless you. Just stand, stand. Uh, I don't know how you look at your faith, uh, but I constantly look at my faith uh, around the, uh, the premise that I must stand uh, and, and that I, I can't stoop any longer. You, will you join me? Because when you join someone, you become courageous. And when someone sees your courage, that becomes the courage of the many. We have stooped for too long. It's time to stand. That's Mordecai's message. And God rewards that greatly. I hope you have a great week as you now stand. And I'll pray for you. God bless you uh, for teaching us your word. It's not always simple to hear, not always easy to hear. But in our souls, we know it is right to hear. Uh, whatever our situation is, um, give us the opportunity to stand and do it boldly for you. Do it with compassion and love for those around us but to do it in such a way that, that truth uh, is exemplified uh, and morality is pushed forward uh, and justice and peace uh, come rushing in. Uh, might we live to see it? Might it start with us? In Christ's name, amen.